When it comes to the Christian life, and in particular, how we make following Jesus practical, and when it comes to pastoral ministry, and when it comes to church ministry, I think that there are a couple words that are really essential, and those words are and both. So in understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you need to learn how to put terms together, both and, and, and both. And don't get me wrong, the word but is also important. For those of you who've been around here for a long time, not throwing the word but under the bus. Ephesians 2, after all, is a glorious text. It sings, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. So there are important either or categories in the Bible. Jesus is Lord or he's not. Heaven is real or it's not. You either believe in Christ as Lord and Savior or you don't. But it seems to me that much of the daily Christian experience, much of what it means to be the church is deeply connected to this other combination of words of both and and. Let me give you a few examples. John describes Jesus' glory in John chapter one as being full of grace and truth. Pastoral ministry in Acts chapter six and verse four is described as a commitment to prayer and the ministry of the word. The Bible tells us in Romans eight that life is hard and God is good. First Thessalonians four invites us to sorrow and to sorrow as those who have hope. Even the triune Godhead, three, and one, Jesus, God, and man. So much of the Christian life then is learning how to hold two things together that in some ways don't seem to go together. Learning how to sort of tolerate that tension or even more so how to embrace that tension. By the way, this is not only true for your life if you're a Christian individually, it's also true for the church, it's particularly true for this church. One of the things that I deeply love about College Park Church, and one of the things that you need to know in order to understand who we are as a church is that we believe in either or categories, look at our statement of faith, our member confession, but we also passionately believe that there are some things that need to be held together. So for instance, we're passionate about global outreach and local outreach and urban outreach. We have a growth strategy that includes both groups and classes. We work hard to recognize, look, we're a big church and we wanna try and make a big church feel small. You just heard, Pastor Paul Spilker, pray by name for people in our church. We do that intentionally, because we want you to know that individual people matter, even though we are a large church. In fact, a number of weeks ago, at the beginning of the year, I shared 
again, this identity compass that relates to how we think about our church culture in terms of depth and care and creativity and impact. And we try to have all of those cultural points be something that we hold together. And the reason is that in my experience, maturity is not merely knowing something, but rather maturity is knowing what's important and how to hold things together. So our vision for our church is that we're a gathered group of people, of men and women, of young and old, single, married, people from different ethnicities, blue collar, white collar. Can I press your buttons a little bit? People who watch Fox News and people who watch MSNBC News. And the miracle of the church and the gospel should be how in the world do people who Love Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. How do they worship together? I'm speaking your living room language right now, aren't I? You can grow a church by having just merely a homogeneous people who look the same, talk the same, act the same, vote the same, think the same. You can grow a church. You can grow a church fast that way. But the fact of the matter is there's something beautiful about what holds the church together And that is the person and work of Jesus that unites things that everything else in our society and culture would say, those don't go together. It's the vision of the New Testament church where the apostle Paul said here, there's neither slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, you're all one in Christ. This concept of both is not just something that expresses itself in how we think about church, how we think about the Christian life. It is the way that Jesus is. And in Isaiah 49, we see contrasts that don't seem to go together and in a normal situation wouldn't, but they're embodied in someone who's called the servant. And in the embodiment of these terms that sometimes don't seem to go together, we not only get a beautiful picture of what Jesus is like, listen to me, we actually get a beautiful picture of what we should be like. And for that matter, what it should mean to live a normal Christian life if you're a follower of Jesus. One of the things that I hope is an outcome of this sermon today is that you'll leave encouraged and still weary. I hope that you'll leave with a greater sense of hope, but also realizing that your doubts might not go away very, very soon. So we're gonna look at some contrasts here in regards to the person and work of Jesus as it relates to the description of this servant in Isaiah 49. So there's three contrasts, weary and trusting, despised and hopeful, forsaken and victorious. Terms that don't really seem to go together, but they actually do, and I think they're really helpful and hopeful. So first, weary and trusting. In verses one and six, or one through six rather, we see Isaiah highlight this servant, this servant who, interestingly enough, experiences deep weariness, but who's also called upon to trust in God's purposes. This section of Isaiah 
began in Isaiah chapter 40 where he says, comfort, comfort my people, and it seeks to give the people of God a vision of what their deliverance from exile would look like. And so this entire section, 40 through 55, is designed to call God's people to believe. And we find this theme of the servant emerging here very clearly in chapter 49, one who will fulfill God's purposes because the people of Israel failed to embrace those purposes. So the servant of the Lord then will take on the role of a new Israel, someone who's going to accomplish the plan of God that the people of God were supposed to fulfill. Now, at the time when this was written, you need to understand that the Old Testament vision of what the servant was was incomplete. We have the advantage as 21st century Christians to look back through the lens of the New Testament and it's really clear to us that Isaiah is talking here about Jesus. With with historical 2020 vision, that is obvious, but it's important to remember that when Isaiah writes this book, the people are sort of building their understanding of what the servant is going to be like and even who he is. And upon this foundation, then, the New Testament writers build their narratives, continually pointing back to Isaiah like no other book in the Old Testament. So this book is foundational at so many levels. The most important verses in chapter 49 are verses 4 and 6. Here they are. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And then in chapter 49 and verse six, we find he says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So do you hear that contrast? The contrast between verse four and verse six. Verse four expresses weariness, almost a sense of pointlessness. The text says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Whereas verse six highlights the global purpose of God. It's an incredible thought in verse six, a real thought that God is going to be victorious. So how do we... What do we do with this? Well, go back to chapter 49 and verse one. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. So the idea is he's inviting again the world sort of into a courtroom to consider this divinely ordained purpose that God is enacting. In verse two, rather verse one, we see divine purpose connected to even the birth of this servant. For the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. In verse two, he says this, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. So this idea of his mouth being a sharp sword, this servant is going to conquer the image of the sword, not by force, but by his words. It's a good reminder that Christianity fundamentally is advanced by proclamation, by word. It's why John describes Jesus in the first chapter of his gospel as in the beginning was the word. 
He doesn't say in the beginning was the king, in the beginning was the conqueror, in the beginning was the commander. He says in the beginning was the word. Why is that important? Because it is the proclamation of the gospel that transforms people from the inside out. So when we talk about building bridges of grace, that's really important that we build bridges of grace, relational equity with people in our community, build bridges into various uh, parts of our community, build bridges overseas, but all of those bridges serve a purpose which is to advance the cause of the proclamation of the gospel. So to be clear, when we do good, we don't do good for good's sake. We don't do good for social gospel's sake. We do good for gospel's sake. Same reason why you build relationships with your neighbors, why you have lunch with people at work. It is to build relational connections because the gospel doesn't usually advance when you just hurl a message over the wall. Rather, it works through relational equity and then the gospel is proclaimed. So here we find this message being declared from this servant Notice verse three, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. This sounds very familiar to the statement in Matthew chapter three at the baptism of Jesus where God says about Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then we find the theme of weariness in verse four, but I said I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Isn't it curious that when we're talking about this servant that's gonna emulate the very purpose of God, that weariness and even a sense of pointlessness is baked into the description of him. One commentator says this, throughout the gospels, Jesus faced rejection, unbelief, prejudice, misunderstanding, Jesus cried out, how long, in Luke chapter nine. He was grieved by the failure of the disciples to understand in Mark chapter eight. And he foresaw the falling away of the core group that followed him in Mark chapter 14. So at a very foundational level, we need to reckon with the fact that Jesus understood and felt the brokenness of the world, and yet, and yet, he had a great confidence in God's plan. He believed and rested in brokenness and beauty. At the same time, the world is broken and I'm coming to rescue it. Isaiah 49 verse four says, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. So here's how that sounds practically in the life of Jesus and how it should sound in your life if you're a Christian. Here's how it sounds. Some of you, this is very important. This is why you're in church today to hear what I'm about to say next. It is that you believe two things at the same time. I am weary and I am trusting. Sometimes Christians make the mistake of thinking, if I'm trusting, I'm not weary, and if I'm weary, I'm not trusting. No, it's not real. It's not how... Christianity works, doesn't operate in these extremes. I'm either trusting or I'm weary. No, I'm weary and I'm trusting. I'm trusting and I'm weary. Trusting in God doesn't necessarily mean that you stop being weary. It just changes how you think about weariness. Listen, we do this in other categories. When you talk to somebody about marriage, isn't it appropriate to say, 
you know what? Marriage is hard. And it's really good. I mean, do you really want to have the conversation with the married couple that when you say, how's marriage? And they're like, oh, marriage is easy. (laughs) Piece of cake. You don't want to talk to that person. Why? Because it's not real. It's just not the way it works. So, In order to have an understanding of what faithfulness is, we need to look to the servant and even maybe lower our expectations a little bit in terms of what we think following Jesus is going to look like. After all, this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter four. He said this, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. It's required of servants that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. By the way, this was written to a judgy church. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Notice Paul's perspective is he's thinking about the big picture reality of who he is in Christ and where his trust ultimately lies. He's in effect saying, I I don't even judge myself, and if you were to judge me, that doesn't matter, because my ultimate judge is the Lord. So he's got a, a different perspective that causes him to sort of fly above all of the tensions that are down here, and Paul has a different perspective, but then that brings him freedom, and here it is in verses 12 and 13. As a result of that mindset, he therefore can write this, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's perspective is that because of his understanding of who he is in Christ, he's actually free to be kind. He's free to not take revenge. He's free to even embrace scum of the world. And that isn't some sort of morbid self-criticism, but rather it is the recognition that what it means to follow Jesus is a direct connection between another world while you live in this one. Look at verse six. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What's he saying here? So he's weary, but he's saying these things. He's saying this, that God has a plan. And listen to me, if you live in this world, it's always going to involve some sort of suffering. Always. The world is too broken our need too great, that we ought not be surprised when life is hard. And yet, the purpose of God is unchanged. I will make you as a light for the nations. My salvation may reach, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So church, listen to me. Oh, let us not mind a little weariness. Let us not be surprised when hardship comes. Let us not be 
to overcome when our hearts are heavy. Let us be reminded that we live in a broken world and we look for our model of how to live in the eyes of a tear-filled savior. Or as a friend of mine reminded me this week, that strong winds remind us of the importance of deep roots. So first we see this servant who is characterized as weary and trusting. Here's the second thing, he's characterized as despised and hopeful. The second contrast is between being externally despised but internally hopeful. Over the last couple years, I've used often a line that another friend of mine gave me, which was this, I think it was about Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my pastoral heroes, that he had a joy that was out of reach of his opponents. Oh, Christian, if your joy is dependent, parents, if your joy is dependent, friend, if your joy is dependent upon what your opponents think of you, you will live a miserable life. We see here this servant described in ways that seem to conflict with one another. And I'm sure this was somewhat conflicting as the people in Isaiah's day read it. Look at verse seven, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one, excuse me, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. So wait a minute, he's the redeemer of Israel, his holy one, and yet he's one deeply despised. He's abhorred by the nation. Like looking back now through the lens of history, we can see how this plays out in the life of Jesus, but at the time, this would not have made sense. And even emotionally, it might not feel like that makes a lot of sense for you in your daily experience because human beings tend to think that success and effectiveness run parallel with popularity. We tend to think that when someone is popular, therefore they're successful. And yet the servant of the Lord, he dies, Jesus, alone, abandoned. And from God's perspective, he's right on plan. And yet the world would have looked at him as an absolute disaster. The way the world works is not the way that God works. So he's described here as one deeply despised. You know what that means? It means to be judged. It means to be thought of lightly, to be devalued, or to be treated with contempt. I'm sure you know what this is like. Perhaps you feel right now at work as a Christian as though you are being viewed with contempt and you wonder in the back of your head, how much longer can I be a faithful Christian and keep my job? Some of you know what it's like because of a disability to feel like people look down on you or have inordinate and unhelpful pity. Maybe you're an older Christian and you feel like so much of the world has changed, you don't know where your place is. Maybe you know the sting because of your ethnicity of somebody looking down at you just the way that they treat you. The fact of the matter is, is our world is filled with all kinds of contempt. Jesus understood this from day one. John chapter one and verse 11, he came to his own 
and his own people did not receive him. Jesus says in Luke chapter 20 that the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. So the reason that all this is important is to understand that God's intention for this servant is for his being despised, but yet also at the same time being filled with hope because he was right on plan. Look at verses eight and nine. God provides reassurance, actually beginning in verse seven. He says, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So he's despised, notice that, he's despised and chosen. That doesn't make sense if you're just a human and you're thinking about how do I change the world? That's not the plan. And yet it was the plan. We find Isaiah has additional reassurances that are given in verses eight and nine that God himself is going to help his people. He's gonna call them to restoration. Verses nine through 10, he's gonna bless them and provide for them. In fact, in ways that are gonna blow their minds. In verses 11 and 12, they're going to see the beautiful plan of God as people are brought back from all over the known world. And all of these promises create an invitation to praise God for the comfort that he provides to his people. And we, we see the, the culmination of this in verse 13 where it says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Notice that. Between verse seven and verse 13, we swing from someone who is deeply despised and abhorred to now the invitation to sing. Ray Ortland says this, the Isaiah, Isaiah's prophetic vision sweeps across the history of salvation. He sees God through the covenant man, Jesus Christ, restoring the ruins that sin has made of us. He sets us free from our self-imposed prisons. He leads us forward into a new way of living, caring for us moment by moment, providing for us fully, overcoming the obstacles, getting us all the way home to his eternal presence. What Orland is saying there is despite all of the tension, all the noise, all the contempt, all the sense of being despised, there is this undercurrent of God's purposes that will not be thwarted, and very practically what that means is the servant doesn't live in light of what earthly people think of him, he's living in light of what his father thinks of him. And for some of you, you need to hear that lesson and learn it well that you need to be asking yourself right now, I know they think this, I know they say that, I know this, but what does God think of me? This is especially important when you feel the stink eye of contempt from other people. When you're treated unfairly for trying to be a faithful follower of Jesus. When you walk into your marketplace or into someone's home or in the context of a relationship or on a texting thread and you are plagued with the thought of what do they think of me? What, what's going on in their head about me? You need to pull away realizing that that's a real emotion but at the end of the day, the question really is, is what does God think of me? 
Well, let me put it really pointedly with this question. If you were misunderstood by others, but known by the Lord, would you be okay? Or if you were trashed by other people, but honored by the Lord, can you still sing? You see, the servant of the Lord is that kind of person. Jesus, that's how he lived. And what Isaiah is doing here is showing us what the servant of the Lord is like in order to provide hope for God's people. And now, as 21st century Christians looking back on that that text, we can realize that, oh, to follow Jesus means this is the game plan. So instead of thinking, I'm despised or hopeful, I'm weary or trusting, to realize that I think the Christian life is actually putting these two words closer together and being okay of living in the uncomfortable tension of what it means to find God's grace in the middle. So third, we find him forsaken, or maybe better, feeling forsaken and victorious. You would think with verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, that that's how the rest of Isaiah 49 would end or how it would go. But it doesn't. Immediately into verse 14, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. This is why I love the Bible. This is why you should read the scriptures carefully and see this, because this is exactly what happens to you. On Sunday, you sing great songs. Hallelujah, holy, holy. And you leave and you get a text from a friend and you think, oh, good grief. And you went from encouraged to immediately discouraged. And for some of us, we think that that flip from one to the other is unusual. And I'm just telling you, it's not. Welcome to what it means to be a Christian. In fact, some of you are spending so much emotional time fretting about the swing. Why can't I just always be encouraged? Or why am I always discouraged? Instead of realizing what it means to live in the middle of trusting in God while two realities are still true. Here is this servant who is forsaken and victorious. I was not really complaining, but maybe complaining a little bit to one of our staff. Uh, they asked me, how's your year going? And uh, I said, well, I thought it was going great. And then this was on uh, January 13th and some things happened on January 13th that were really discouraging and overwhelming. And I said, I was having a great year until January 13th. And this brother said, well, you had 13 days. <laughs> which I kind of appreciated. (laughs) But it is a good perspective to have. Isaiah imagines the people of God saying, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. But notice how God responds to this. Quickly, verse 15, like a mother, God cannot forget or abandon his people. Verse 16, the people of God are engraved on the palms of his hands. There's a 
tattoo on God's hand with your name on it. Verse 17, God promises to take care of them and to lead them to victory. And verses 20 to 21, they will look at their lives. They will be stunned at how God helped them. See, it's just a matter of time until you're gonna see how God is working out his plan. There's beautiful imagery in verses 22 through 23. At the command of God, the, the nations will carry them. People of power like kings and queens will take care of them, even bow in submission to them. And what is the point of all of this? The point is in verse 23. Look at it, 49, 23. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. There's that theme of waiting again. The confession of God's people will be that it was the Lord who made them victorious and their sense of being forsaken will be banished and they will know that it was God who delivered them. So they feel forsaken, but they're actually not forsaken, but they feel it nonetheless. And so therefore God promises to display his power. He's gonna take the prey in verse 24 and 25, those who pray from the mighty and those who are captives he will deliver them from a tyrant. In other words, there is no power on earth that can thwart the plan of God. He will enact true justice and all those who are guilty of oppression in verse 26 will be under his judgment that God is going to rule and rescue. God's gonna make everything right. And then we come to verse 26. Here's the goal. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, and the Mighty One of Jacob. That's the goal. And the servant serves that purpose. And those who follow the servant, Jesus Christ, share in the same purpose. So if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you need to understand that what Jesus does is he, he lives and dies in such a way that it's absolutely backwards to how human beings think. The Bible is merciful in the fact that the Bible tells you that your problem is you, and that you need a savior, and it's merciful that you can't do it on your own. So the whole world system of it's somebody else's fault, I can do it, the Bible says no, you're the problem, you can't do it on your own, you need someone else to rescue you, and in trusting Christ, you're actually delivered. And that's completely backwards to how human beings think. And that's the point, because at the end of the day, nobody can stand before God and say, I killed it when it came to salvation. <laughs> or maybe actually we could say, yeah, you did kill it. Like you killed it hard. Nobody can stand before Jesus and say, look what I did. In fact, it's the reverse. It's to say, look what you did. So Christian, understanding the world through this lens, understanding who Jesus is, how he lives, this isn't something just for you to see and think, hmm, that's interesting, great for him, I'm glad he did that. No, 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 this, this, is, this is the way of, that God intends not only to redeem the world, but the way in which he intends to invite you to follow him. It means that we can see the trajectory of history. We can know that eventually Jesus is going to come back. We know that the devil is going to be defeated, that sin is going to be eradicated, and there is coming a day when we will see the full display of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and everything is working right in accordance with that divine plan, even your weariness and feeling forsaken and being discouraged because those things don't destroy you, you say, 
Yes, I'm weary, but I'm trusting. Yes, I'm clinging and I'm hoping. Yes, I'm weary, and yet I am also still trusting in the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm not a huge fan of puzzles. I don't even know what Wordle is. I do, but I really don't care. I'm like the anti-Wordle person. No, I'm not, I'm trying to put those things together. Love people puzzles, not people, okay. My point is that Christmas time, other family members like to do puzzles, and that's great. For those of you who like puzzles, you know what the strategy is. You find the corner pieces, you mark out the, the sides, and then you begin to put it together. And part of the joy of the puzzle is not seeing the whole picture. And to be good at a puzzle, to be good at puzzles, you have to tolerate the frustration of not knowing where the pieces go. That's part of the fun. Oh, this doesn't fit. Rats, that tension, that's what it, that's fun. Like, which is why I'm like, no, that's my life. I don't want that. So. And maybe you put the box up and you see the little picture and everything else, but you know, part of the joy is the journey of trying to put the pieces together. Can I remind you, Christian, that's what it means to follow Jesus. So instead of being frustrated that you can't see how everything fits or being worried that somebody stole a piece of the puzzle, you have a family member like that, they put it in their pocket so they can put the last piece in, that's wickedness. Rather than being frustrated, I can't see how it all fits, realize that's what it means to play with puzzles. And can I just encourage you, when things don't seem to always go together, that's not only what it means to be a Christian, it's actually how Jesus lived. So in your weariness, trust him in your sense of being despised, be hopeful. When you feel forsaken, remember, you're gonna win in the end because Jesus wins. And we live by being faithful to the one who's been so faithful to us. Jesus, we thank you that you hold things together in ways that we can't. And we ask you to hold us together even now because we need your help. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.